Hey, Soakers. Last week, we started telling you the case of Dwayne Johnson and Chad Shelton's unexplained deaths. Investigators were stumped. They could not identify what had happened to them, much less identify anyone responsible. Today, we will learn how through diligent investigative work, answers would finally be revealed. Detective Miller and a team went to the Johnson home. Neighbors were questioned to see if there had been any unwanted visitors or suspicious people in the neighborhood lately, but no one had seen anything and nothing in the house showed any evidence. This left Detective Miller without a really clear direction for this case. So he kind of just followed his instinct. Many times when a husband or a wife dies, suddenly it's their spouse that's looked at as a prime suspect. So Miller began tailing Sandy on and off. And he even followed her while she went to the grocery store. And after she paid, he went up to the cashier and showed his badge and asked the worker what she had bought. And she hadn't bought anything suspicious. It was just regular groceries. After a few days, Miller stopped following her and instead began calling up old friends of hers. And, you know, as it happens, Sandy inevitably found out that he was calling her old friends. And when she confronted him about it, he lost his temper and she hung up the phone on him. And Detective Miller really started to suspect that Sandy was not who she appeared to be. And he really wanted to dig more into her past. He found out that in high school, she had been seeing a 17-year-old named Jim Murphy while she was also seeing her ex-boyfriend, David. Now, Jim proposed to Sandy while she was a junior in high school, and she had to actually get permission from her mom to get married because she was too young. And Jim actually hadn't told his parents that he was getting married and planned to elope, and when his father found out, he was totally livid. But they did get married and they rented a small apartment and, you know, you know how it is. Your first place, right? Like it's unfurnished. You have very sparse things. You're eating really cheaply like canned foods. And shortly after marrying, Jim said that he started to notice that Sandy was very jealous and that they would get into huge arguments that would end up with her hitting him multiple times. Jim worked really hard and soon they were able to move into a house. And Sandy said that she really didn't want to work, but that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and she wanted to have two children, one boy and one girl. They had a lot of disagreements and arguments in their marriage. At one point, Sandy threw her wedding ring in a lake and demanded that Jim buy her a new one. And during one fight, she threw an ashtray at Jim's head. And when he didn't react to this, she took a knife and started slashing at the furniture. When Jim went to confront her about this, she took the leg off of a table and swung it like a bat at him. And then he punched her and she got knocked out. So obviously, really bad relationship here. Like, yeah. the, it, awful 
toxic, bad, bad, bad. So, you know, at this point, they separated after this fight, but they still remained married until Sandy filed for divorce in June 1973. And they had been married for just shy of three years. Within a few days of filing for divorce, Sandy told her brother, Ron, that she was tired of being alone. And Ron asked her, well, do you know anyone from high school that hasn't been married yet? And she said, well, you know, there is Steve Harper. I feel like there's so much there. Like, first of all, within a few days of filing for divorce, you're tired of being alone is a lot. Yes. And then... I wouldn't say it's just the times, but do you know anyone from high school that hasn't been married? I'm like, now yes. you would have like half of your Oh class my gosh. And they, like she was still, so they had been married for only three years. So she's about 20 years old yeah. at this point. So, so yeah. Yeah. Like, do you even know anyone who's still available after three years of being out and of there's high school? There's like, like one uh, dude. <laughs> yes. And she's like, well, there is Steve Harper. And Steve, you know, was quiet and shy. And he had really only had like one or two classes with Sandy. This wasn't someone that she had engaged in a relationship with in high school. This was not one of her closest friends. It was just a classmate. And, you know, he was looked at as a responsible young man. And, you know, neighbors would let him house sit if they went out of town. Like this type of, this type of guy. He was going to school to train to be a vet, and he had never dated or even had a girlfriend. Ron decided that he was going to be the middleman for his sister, and he called Steve and said that his sister was going through a divorce and needed a friend. Like, would he be interested? So Steve got her number, and he told his parents, and at this point, his parents were totally thrilled that a girl was going to enter his life. Sandy came over while Steve's parents were out of town. And according to Steve, Sandy made the first move and taught him how to have sex. And they would then meet daily and then eventually twice a week. Sandy would often ask Steve to tell her that he loved her. Now, when the fall semester arrived, Steve put things on hold to focus on school. And this did not make her happy. She gave him an ultimatum, school or her. He said he wanted to marry her, but he wanted to wait until 1975 when he graduated college and could provide for her. And again, like, I feel like that's very indicative of the times. Like, we can't be together. I have to do this, this, and this first before I can provide for, you know. Yeah, but I also think so. it's very reasonable to want it's to very wait reasonable. to be until after you finish until school. Until you're done with school, yes. <laughs> Eventually, he told her that if she wanted to date other guys, she could, and she did. She started seeing a new man named Jeff, and after a few dates, she told Steve that they were in love. But in the summer of 1974, Steve and Sandy were back together. Sandy had actually enrolled at a business school to be a secretary, and so they were both studying together. And Sandy did not adjust to student life well. She wanted to go out and be carefree. You know, she didn't really want a job. She didn't want to work. That wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. She wanted, uh, you know, that's, that's the life that she wanted. Yeah. Now, during an argument, she told Steve, quote, you're just like Jim Harper. And this sent him into a blind rage and he started choking her. And then he apologized and she left. Like, again. So again, very toxic. (sighs) Now, Steve didn't call her for two months after that. And when he did, Sandy informed him that she was with someone else, Dwayne Johnson, and that they were planning to get married. And Steve did not take this well at all. He would show up at her job with flowers, wait outside her work to see if she needed a ride. 
Sandy and Dwayne got married on January 17th, 1975, and Steve entered his last semester of college. As he's learning all of this, Detective Miller goes to interview Jean and Dave Beard, which are Sandy's parents, and he wanted to know all about her. And Jean said that as a child, Sandy was accident-prone, that she kept to herself, and as she got older, she really didn't have any hobbies or interests or extracurriculars or anything, but she was very concerned with looking nice. When asked how Sandy had met Dwayne, Jean shared that Dwayne had actually been dating Sally. Detective Miller mentioned that Jean and Dave had said that Sandy and Dwayne had a happy marriage, but now they recalled that there had been some friction in the days leading up to the poisoning. Jean actually looked at Detective Miller and said that she thought that somehow Sandy was involved in the deaths of Chad and Dwayne. And she shared that Sally also shared the sentiment. Like, can you imagine? This is her mom, right? Like, and I'm sure Detective Miller is like, whoa, (laughs) okay. Jean also said that Sandy had made the family suffer before and that one of her ex-boyfriends had shot at Jean and she had a scar under her eye and that this man was still in prison. Miller was very mad that this had not shown up when he searched. Yes. he And he was also known as being very much like anti the computers. And so he this was like adding to his like, the system has failed me because I should have seen this before. So Miller went back to the station and found Steve Harper's file. Steve had shot Gene and had also had an altercation with Dwayne Johnson. And Miller thought back to how Sandy had said that she had no knowledge of anyone who would want to hurt the family. So here's what happened. After Dwayne and Sandy got married, Steve fell into a depression and he had suicidal thoughts. And one night he drove out to a spot overlooking where the beards lived. And he saw Dwayne and Sandy, Sally, and some friends return after a night out. And he sped his car down to them. When Sandy asked what he wanted, he went into a rage and started shooting his shotgun. And pellets hit Sandy's brother Dan in the head and another one hit Gene right under the eye. Dan and Gene were rushed to the hospital where they did not have any extensive damage and the police went after Steve. And at the hospital, Sandy said, quote, I've brought another episode on the family. So police were looking for Steve, who had abandoned his car and disappeared. Over the next few weeks, letters started arriving in the mailbox, all with the same message. Dwayne will never have Sandy. And remember, at this point, Sandy and Dwayne are married. In August, a letter addressed to Gene showed up. And it was cut out pictures from a witchcraft magazine, and it did not have any text. Now, the police said that they were paying special attention to the Beard House, but that they had not found anyone bringing the letters because it was clear that the letters had not been put in the post office. They were, they were like, there was no stamp. There was no postmark. They just seemed to be placed in the mailbox. In September, Steve made his way to Oklahoma and sought help from a psychiatrist who specialized in hypnosis. And he only saw her twice. In July 1976, Steve was pulled over. When his license was checked, it was clear that he had a warrant out. And his parents hired him a lawyer who advised him to plead no contest. And he was sentenced to one to five years in jail for the shooting. 
Miller called the jail and was told that Steve Harper had been on work release in July of 1977 and paroled that November. This meant that he was a free man at the time of the poisoning. So Miller searched for anything that would lead to Steve's current whereabouts. He found that Steve had signed documents when his 16-year-old brother was in a motorcycle accident that September, which led him to believe that Steve was still in Omaha. And Miller started digging even more into Steve's past and found out that when he was nine, he and a group of boys had lit a fire to burn snakes, and he ended up with burns on 65% of his body. And he underwent at least 13 operations. And this kind of really impacted him, obviously. It caused him to never want to participate in sports or anything where he couldn't wear long sleeves. And Miller suspected that this also accounted for his never having dated or had a girlfriend before Sandy. Steve's prison counselor wrote that Steve was mature and he would have no problems reintegrating into society upon his release. Miller was contacted by the prison Steve had been at with a list of jobs that Steve held upon his release. And one of these jobs was at Epley Institute, which is a medical research center. Miller called Wiley at the CDC and reported this. Wiley said that Dr. Kimbrough had actually contacted him that day to see if he knew whether or not any of the family had been exposed to the Epley Institute. So now things are coming together, right? Like. So she, Dr. Kimbrough, had been continuously looking at the tissues from Chad and Dwayne, still trying to figure out what had happened. She had noticed that Dwayne's lobules in his liver had been damaged from the center. Now, she had seen this kind of thing before, but not with poison, but with potent chemicals. And she knew that the only place in Omaha that would have chemicals of this type were at the Epley Institute. Detective Miller kept going back and forth on if he thought Steve and Sandy had committed this crime. He felt like they were capable of it, but it was done in such a way that many people could have died. And so it's like, you know, did they do this together? Did one of them do this? Are they not involved? Mm -hmm. And this is all just a coincidence. There are a lot of questions. That Sunday, Jean Beard called Detective Miller and said that she wanted to show him something. She showed him a letter Steve had sent her after the shooting. It was thick and contained demonology magazine cutouts, illustrations of demons having sex with women. Detective Miller believed that Steve was insane and that he would not really care about poisoning an entire family. Right. Like after you're seeing these types of letters and magazine cutouts, like in the book, which is really good, it's called Toxic Love by Thomas Gillian, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, he actually has photos of these letters, like the witchcraft letter and the demon letters, and they're very disturbing illustrations. And if I saw that, I definitely would not think that this was someone who was totally in their right frame of mind. Right. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. So after this letter became known, Lieutenant Foster Burchard decided to hone in on Steve Harper. And they decided to have Detective Greg Thompson to be the one to actually interview Steve. Thompson was known as being extremely laid back and able to get lots of info from people without them feeling threatened, like kind of the opposite of Detective Miller, like very much very chill. 
On October 3rd, a judge agreed to sign a search warrant for Steve. They first called Steve's home several times throughout the morning, and no one answered. Around 1.30 p.m., they went over to the home. Now, they noticed that the home didn't really look lived in. There was an organic chemistry book on the table with notes that said, BJ died in three to four days. Number two lost its legs. And they also found vials with stoppers in them, and one of them was labeled 24. Surgical gloves and a combination of chemicals that can be used to make explosives were found in the kitchen. In the garage, five empty rat cages were found, and plenty of rat feces were found, but no live or dead rats were found. Now, all of this seemed suspicious, but none of it was enough for an arrest warrant. And Steve at this point was nowhere to be found. Detectives asked his dad where he was and got the reply, Beaumont, Texas. And Steve had been working at a municipal airport in Beaumont. Detective Miller was frustrated and he lost his temper at work and actually threw a chair. And in the book, it just says like everyone that was around just ducked. Like this was just par for the course for Detective Miller. So he decided to go to the Epley Institute himself, but this proved to be unhelpful. The workers there said that Steve had only been there for a brief time and they gave him a rundown of Steve's duties, but that was pretty much it. On Sunday, October 8th, Ron Betton, one of Sandy's brothers, called Detective Miller and said that he wanted to relay a story that he had heard that morning at church. He said that it had become known that Steve's parents had actually had their cat and dog die a month before Dwayne and Chad, and the reason that they had died was because they had been poisoned. The following day, Miller went to the vet office that had cared for the pets. And upon interviewing the vet, he learned that the dog had died in the exact same way as Dwayne and Chad, that there had been blood coming out of the nose and the gums and a lot of similar symptoms. Investigators now believed that they had enough to charge Steve and warrants were brought up. Two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of poisoning one for Dwayne, one for Chad, and one for Sherry. On Thursday, October 12th, a press conference was held and Steve Harper was named. Reporters went to Steve's parents and neighbors and asked about who Steve was. And his mom was adamant that he was innocent. And neighbors described him as someone who took things very seriously and that he kept to himself. And reporters also dug into his past and learned about the shooting. And I thought it was very interesting that the way that they described him was that he was someone who took things very seriously. Like, I don't feel like we hear that very often. We hear kept to themselves, Mm -hmm. this type of thing. But I just thought that that was interesting. The FBI found and arrested Steve in Texas and Miller flew out. That night when they went to meet him in the prison... They found him with his arm slashed and the name Sandy written in his blood on the wall. I would be horrified. (laughs) Yes. So he actually broke a window and used the glass to slash his arms. Just horrifying. Yep. He had lost a lot of blood, but the injuries were not fatal. An ambulance was dispatched, but Detective Miller and his team did read him his rights and talked with him. 
And they tried to, you know, kind of win his trust, playing the, oh, you know, Sandy, she shouldn't have done that to you, kind of trying to befriend him. But Steve was not responsive. He said that his attorney had warned him not to talk. But then he just kind of shifted that completely and said, I did it. I'm still in love with Sandy. Everything built up inside me. I had to do it. He told them that his plan had been to inoculate Dwayne and Sandy with a cancer-causing carcinogen that would take years to kill them. He admitted to breaking into their home when they were gone with a vial he had obtained from Epley. Now, he identified this as DMBA. He actually did say the wrong one. It was DMN. Which I pulled up the chemical compound name for this, and it, I'm going to try my best with this. It's nitro Nitrosodamethylamine. He searched around for what to put it on and considered lunch meat, but then noticed the lemonade. And he said in the days after this, he felt totally euphoric and that all of his demons were gone. In January of 1979, Sandy Johnson admitted her daughter Sherry to the children's hospital. She wanted to find out if the constant bruising that Sherry experienced was a result of the poison. Steve Cooper was the prosecutor assigned to the case. Lawrence J. Corrigan was appointed as Steve's defense attorney. He was familiar with Steve's dad. Now, he wanted to prove that the deaths were unusual and it was impossible to prove. And he felt that if the prosecution had a strong enough case, then he would instead go for insanity for Steve. Now, while Steve was in jail, he did meet with multiple mental health specialists, but they all determined that he was sane. And we've talked a lot about the different levels of what it would mean to be sane, what sort of mental health issues would pose a a viable justification for insanity plea. But I think ultimately, it often comes down to, could you determine right from wrong? Like, could Mm -hmm. you be aware Mm -hmm. of your actions? And he was definitely determined to be on the I think the fact that, like, he, when he broke into their home, he even had, like, the consideration, do I put this cancer-causing carcinogen in lunch meat? Or should I put it in the beverage? Like... There's considerations there that I think you have to, you have to have a certain type of like mental awareness for that, right? Right. It's like, is he all there mentally and completely functionally normal? No. No. But did he steadfastly plan this knowing it was wrong and have many, many, many opportunities to not do this? Yes. On July 2nd, 1979, Corrigan, Cooper, Steve, and a court reporter entered Judge Murphy's courtroom for the pretrial hearing. Steve's childhood pastor came to talk with him, and he felt that Steve was not in a stable headspace. And Steve's dad said that Steve had attempted suicide three times and that he was worried that it was going to happen again while he was locked up. On September 18, 1979, Steve's trial began. During this trial, it became known that Sandy had remarried five months after Dwayne's death. And she spoke on the stand for about a day and a half about the aftermath of the poisoning and kind of every step-by-step of what Dwayne's symptoms had been like and how they had escalated. One of Steve's cellmates from when he had been locked up for the shootings also testified he spoke about how Steve had sworn that he would kill Sandy upon his release 
and that he had said, if I can't have her, no one can. And this cellmate, who was named Trout, said that he and Steve met up when they had actually both been released and that Steve had been working at Epley at this point. Trout said that Steve was excited to tell him about a, quote, fantastic poison that would be impossible to detect but would cause cancer to grow. Trout also said that Steve told him he was going to use that poison on Sandy. When he was asked why he didn't report this to authorities, Trout said that it sounded so unbelievable that no one would have taken it seriously. Now, Steve was very angry that Corgan was not harder on Trout. Over the following week in the trial, the jury was subjected to a lot of medical testimony. And this reminds me of the uh, Dr. Death case. Yes. Here in Texas, because that was a big part of jumping through the hoops and getting that conviction is Mm -hmm. that you know, juries are just made up of regular people. And to really say that somebody is guilty of something, you have to have this level of understanding. They have to Mm -hmm. give them this education piece that can be really hard to do in the amount of time that you have allotted in a trial. Even while, while reading the book, I was like... I don't quite understand what this means. Like these scientific things, I do not have the knowledge for this. So I cannot even imagine being on a jury and having to take these things into consideration. So hard. You know, they're having to learn about how chemicals react within the body and do this in all an accessible way where no matter your level of knowledge or intelligence, you can really understand this. And all Steve's defense testimonies lasted 37 minutes which is not very long, especially when you're getting days and days and days of this medical testimony from the other side. Right. So closing arguments were made and the jury was left to deliberate. And the following day, they returned a verdict, guilty on all five counts. A month later, Steve was up for sentencing. He was sentenced to death by electric chair on February 15th, 1980. Now, when they do that initial day it doesn't mm-hmm. happen on that day it's no. it's just they have to give it a day but they know we've talked about executions before yes. they know that it's not going to be on that day they yes. just like legally have to set a day so they go through all of the appeals processing years and years and years and and we mentioned this in a, a recent case the Pettit mm-hmm. case that it yeah might not even ever happen Or if it does happen, it's going to be years and years after that original proposed date. In April of 1990, Steve obtained a tape recorder and recorded a message about how spirits were telling him what to do. He said that they harassed him and even filtered gas into his room. And he said that he was a, quote, new creature. Hmm. And on December 6th, 1990, Steve went out into the yard with the other prisoners to exercise, which was something that he did not actively do. He had not done in years. And he went out only in shorts and a T-shirt, although it was very cold. And at 4 p.m. that day, he ate. He got his antipsychotic meds, but he did not take them. And at 8 p.m., he got his next dose, but also did not take them, just did not swallow. And he wrote a note to his parents, took all of his stash medicine and died. And it seemed like he had been doing that for a while, like that he had a stockpile of medicine that he had not taken. 
So a lot of things happened in the aftermath of this case. The Shelton's were convinced that one day they were going to die of cancer. And Bruce said that he really wanted to try for another baby, but Sally was adamantly opposed. And the couple divorced in 1991. And Sally remarried, but vowed to still not have any more kids. Now, Sandy and her new husband, Bruce, had a baby in 1980, and they moved into a new house. During a fight, Bruce purposefully set fire to their home, and Sandy and the children barely made it out. Sandy filed for divorce, but Bruce somehow only spent a few days in jail for this arson. And they actually got remarried and then divorced again in 1983. Jean Beard died in 1993, and Detective Miller retired from the force in 1984 and died of cancer in 1989. And that really brings our case to a close, but I want to get into some thoughts on this yes. case. I think that this this is a pretty wild one. It's very, very uh, different. Like, when I was first reading it, I was like, how is this case going to even be a true crime, right? Like I I was like reading the book and trying to understand what was going on. I had no idea, so many twists and turns. But I want to talk about how good the science work and the police work was for being in the 70s. Like I am so amazed by Dr. Kimbrough, by the health department. And like Detective Miller was very persistent. And I just think that it's amazing to me that they were able to identify the cause of their deaths for being at that time. Like, it's really, right. truly amazing to me. Yeah. I think if this happened now, we have so many more things that can help test for stuff. But like you said, when you test for toxins, it's not like you get one blood sample and you get tested for everything all at once. You get a blood sample and they test for one thing. Then they get another blood sample and they test for one thing, right? Yeah, like, and they can test for, you know, several things at a time. But sure. still, you have to know what you're testing for. And it's yes. still, like, you have to get multiple... Yes. You can't test for everything, so you do have to get multiple samples. Yep. And in the case where somebody is dead, a yeah. lot of times you only have very yeah. few samples. Yeah. And sometimes things... Like they leave traces. There's no, yes. tra you have a window of time that you yes. can gather those samples. I do want to talk about Detective Miller <laughs> and just like I feel like Detective Miller as an investigator was so, 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 so good. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine what it was like working with him, <laughs> like for someone to be throwing chairs and like punching the, the filing cabinets. But he really did strike me as someone who you would kind of see on like a cop show. Yes. Like that detective that is so determined and just follows hunches and like is terrible to work with. Well, right? And I feel like <laughs> it's really interesting to me. It, it seems like this case was not being pushed over to the police. Yes. It was like, yes. well, we'll report to the health department, right. but let's not even bring the police into the fray here until he yes. heard about it and was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> like, it was because people were like, something is not right. And I think that, like, especially for that time, like, I feel like 
they were still following hunches. Right. And so I just, I I really do enjoy reading about Detective Miller. Yes. I also do want to talk about Sandy in her relationships and how all of her relationships were not good with her romantic partners. Every single man that she was married to or dated, they had an implosive relationship each time, even like after this, right? Even with her new husband in the 80s that purposefully set fire to their home with her and the children inside of it. Like just so many things. And like, I think that in the book, you know, Detective Miller kind of set his sights on Sandy as like she's involved somehow, like something is not right with her. And she wasn't involved in this crime, right? Like she wasn't a criminal, but she had horrible relationships her whole life with men, starting from when she was in high school. And it does sound like there's at least a possibility that she was also abusive. Oh, definitely. So. It was reciprocal. Like she, you know, she threw the ashtray at the at the head. She slashed all the furniture. She took the chairs off, you know, the legs off of the table. Just very much toxic relationships. And so I, I hate like learning about that. But I also think that that stuff isn't talked about very often. Yeah. Um, and like she wasn't involved in the crime, but she just had some bad things mm-hmm. happened to her and that she did as well. And I also, the last thought I want to hash out with you is that this type of crime where you break into someone's home and poison a beverage could have resulted in so many people dying. Yes. And to me, it's like the fact that he chose to do the lemonade. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming he knew that there were children like Mm -hmm. there's a very real possibility that the kid is the only one drinking the lemon right or that kids you know and so it could have been like he just poisoned a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. if they had had like a party of neighborhood kids or something yep it's crazy to me he did not discriminate at all and like when he was telling trout when i get out you know i'm gonna i'm gonna poison sandy and his plan was to inoculate her and Dwayne. To then have cancer, which is horrifying. I didn't realize that that was a thing. But like this could have resulted in so many more deaths. And how horrible that this entire crime is because it just didn't discern from anybody. And it's just horribly tragic. And that is the case of Dwayne Johnson and Chad Shelton. And that brings us to our self-care and prepare. So for my self-care tip, I have been feeling overwhelmed with my apartment and like trying to clean everything. And so like what I do is I always get into my head and I'm like, I got to set aside this amount of hours to clean, right? But what I've started doing is I've started just cleaning like a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes like you just set aside 30 minutes, you focus on one room or one chore and you do that and you don't have to fully do a deep clean every single time that you want to clean something, right? Like you can just do it in chunks. And I think that that's really been helping me. 
And my prepare tip is something that I kind of tried to relate to this case, but also uh, to my own life. So like I've been dealing with some uh, not so fun health situations. And I was like, of course, I would be having like horrible pain in my stomach as I'm reading a case that involves people having the worst pain of their lives. And And like you're getting no answers and stuff. And I'm getting no answers. And I'm like, oh my God. But my prepare tip is just to seek medical care if you are in pain, especially if you are in debilitating pain or the worst pain of your life. But even if you're not, you can still seek care and hopefully you will get answers. Okay, Soakers, we'll leave it here for today. Tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Bye! Bye! for some Bath and Body Parts merch? Snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.